you missed me. Uh, just clear your message and I'll give you a call back. Thanks. Hey, you're never gonna guess what just happened to me. Just give me a call back as soon as you can. I did see Jesus at Starbucks. But before you start worrying about my mental health, at least more than normal, um, let, me, let me kind of give you a little context for that. Um, I'm, I'm notoriously bad at buying gifts. I, I want to be a good shopper and buy good gifts, but for some reason when I go into a mall, especially if I'm buying for Mary Alice, I just freeze because there's too many stores, too many places to shop, too many items, too many sizes, and I just, I, I'm, like, I'm like lost. Now, if they only had three choices, I could probably shop. Um, but anyway, I freeze up, and, and I do my best, and Mary Alice is so positive about everything I buy. You know, she always tells me it's great, but I always am concerned that it's not. And I remember well, Christmas about five years ago, uh, I had bought her a few gifts, but I decided I would, I would wimp out, uh, like some of you guys do. And don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about, all right, men? I think I put $500 in a card and said, go shopping. And we like to go, out, like many of us, we like to go away to Kansas City every once in a while. And we did. And we, I told Mary Alice I wanted to take her to her favorite shopping place, which is in Overland Park. And um, <laughs> I, I, gave her some, I gave her this before I left. I said, I don't want to go shopping with you. Now, I need to give you a little context for that statement. Uh, I tend to be a real positive person. And if anyone asks my reactions for things, I'm usually pretty, pretty positive so positive about it that the word around the, the staff is that I am Pollyannish. And if you've ever seen that, that movie, that old Disney movie, you know about this little girl who was always happy about everything, and, and her character gave rise to an adjective, Pollyannish, which means person is just, just positive about pretty much everything. And that's how I am. The only problem is, is that people around me want to get my, get my, um, my take on things, and I come across with some sort of positive statement. And so those people who are really close to me, like my staff and family and people who work with me, they've learned to calibrate and sort of curve in, 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 in a reverse kind of way my comments. And I, I saw this with my staff not too long ago. Actually, we were, we were in a staff meeting, and I was kind of watching their faces. And, and what they've determined is, is that they want to know, do I think it's fantastic or is it just great? Or is it only good? And I knew that it was, I'd, I, I knew I'd really gone off the edge when I said something was interesting, and a couple of my staff members looked at each other and said, that's the kiss of death. <laughs> and it's that way with Mary Alice, too, and, and especially when we go shopping, because she'll look at me and she'll say, what do you think about this? And I'll say, it's great. And she'll say, okay, I'll put it back. <laughs> I said, well, I said it was great. She said, I was watching your eyes. So the whole thing about her going shopping, and that's the reason why I said I didn't want to go with her, because I don't want you watching my eyes, because I want you to get what you want. As you can tell from looking at me, I don't know anything about clothes. Um, <laughs> I am clothes challenged. I, I'm, a, I'm a child of the late 60s, early 70s, and, and so I, I'm not into clothes that much. So I just said, hey, just, just get what you want. And so in, in order to just like pass the time, I, there's a Starbucks there in Overland Park that I like to go to. And by the way, I love Starbucks. Don't you like Starbucks? I mean, it's awesome coffee. It has to be, or else they wouldn't charge $4 a cup for it. Um, <laughs> and it is good coffee. Every once in a while, someone will say, well, it isn't the coffee, it's the atmosphere. But take a look at the drive through you know? So Starbucks is great. I have wonderful coffee. Really, you know, I get wired when I drink it, and I like that part of it. Um, and I do like the atmosphere. It's kind of chic, early 60s, and all that kind of thing. So I, I left Morales at the shopping center, and, and I went over to 
to Starbucks. And I took my Bible in with me and my legal pad, which is sort of omnipresent with me when I, when I go someplace. And you need to understand that when I went into the Starbucks that day, I wasn't reading my Bible to work on a series. I was reading my Bible just because I, I was craving it for myself. And for, for any of you who are communicators of the Bible, it's really important that you don't just study to talk to other people about God. It's really important to study to get something that God can say to you. And when I went in that day, I, I was just sort of craving uh, a certain part of the Bible. I, I get that way, like you crave a certain food or you crave a certain drink. I, I can get to the place where if I haven't read a particular part of the Bible, I'll just get, I get hungry for it. And the particular part that I was interested in that day was what we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we, I don't know why we call it the Sermon on the Mount, because most of Jesus' sermons were preached on a mountain. But this particular sermon is very, very important, and a lot of Bible students call it the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher in history. And what's cool about this sermon is that Jesus tackles a lot of topics. I would encourage you to read it for yourself if you haven't read it in a while. Uh, he starts off by how to be happy. You know, he was, he was a radical teacher. People were accustomed to religion and rules and hoops to jump through. Jesus just talked about life, and he started off by talking about how to be happy. And he gave 10, 11 ways that you can know if you're a happy person. And then he talked about dealing with anger. And I don't know if there's anybody else who's had to deal with anger in his or her life, but anger is kind of my issue. Now, I control it real well, but I don't suffer fools gladly. And I'm very intense, and there are no pastels in my personality. So when Jesus talks about anger, I'm all over it. He talked about relationships, and if there's a breakage in a relationship, how to deal with it, how to deal with it quickly before it gets out of hand. He talked about people who are married being faithful to each other. He talked about how to pray and get your prayer answered. He talked a little bit about heaven and hell and a broad road that leads to destruction, a narrow road that leads to everlasting life. He just covered a lot of topics, and, and I got lost. I was sitting there at Starbucks drinking my coffee and sitting in my upholstered leather chair, and it was like I just got transfixed. I wasn't in Starbucks anymore. It was like I actually got to be there with Jesus and listen to him talk to me. And then all of a sudden, I just came up for air, and I looked around me. And what I saw when I looked around were just people that you would expect to see at Starbucks. And maybe you see when you go to Starbucks every day. I saw a woman in a business suit working with a laptop. And I just looked at, the, I looked at the expression on her eyes. There was intensity. There was fear. There was worry. There was stress. And this particular Starbucks happened to be right down the street from a large multinational corporation that was in deep trouble. And I kind of wondered, was she part of that? She worried about whether she was going to have her job. Was, was she concerned about whether, you know, her production was going to meet expectation? I looked, and in front of me, straight in front of me, was a, a mom with a little boy. There in the Starbucks, there, there, was some, there were some toys and some kids' books, and it was a little, looked like about four or five-year-old boy was playing with the toys, and I was watching the mom, and the mom was kind of leaning forward like, like moms sometimes do. And again, I could read her expression because you could see she was worrying about, was she a good mom? Was she living up to what expectations were? Was she going to be able to raise this boy to become a man? Over on my left, in another chair like I was sitting in, was a guy, middle-aged, and it was cold day. He was hunched down into his coat, but when I looked on his face, the only word to describe his expression was just despair. He was so hurt 
I have no idea what, what had hurt him, but you could just see the look on his face. It was, it was as if he carried the weight of the world. And I, and I wonder, was it the breakup of a relationship? Was it bad news about his, his, own, his own life? Did he lose his job or did he get a bad report from a doctor? Was it somebody that he loved who was going through a hard time? But I had no idea what, what he was dealing with, but my heart just went out to the guy. And I was sitting there in such joy thinking about Jesus and who he was that the question that was on my mind was, I wonder if these people are ever going to know Jesus the way I know him. Are they ever going to experience his love and his grace and his genius and his power the way I know it? Could I ask you a question this morning? Do you know Jesus? If you grew up like me in an evangelical church, you know that that question, do you know Jesus, is a euphemistic way of asking, have you been saved? That isn't what I want to know. I want to know, do you know Jesus? Would you know him if you ran into him at Starbucks? Would you know him if you ran into him any place? Would he be the person that you thought he was? You know, our title is a little funny. I was just speaking in Tennessee five times in the last few days. And in the last talk that I gave, I said, I'm, going, I'm flying back to Wichita. I'm starting a brand new series at my church called I Saw Jesus at Starbucks. And the laughter rippled through the audience. Because that's kind of a funny title, isn't it? Well, it makes it funny. Well, it's like I saw, if I said I saw, Jesus, uh, if I said I saw Julius Caesar at Pizza Hut. Or if I saw Abraham Lincoln in Old Navy. You know what makes that funny? It's a person out of his time. It's an anachronism. You know that Julius Caesar isn't going to show up at Pizza Hut because Julius Caesar lived over, over 2,000 years ago. And Abraham Lincoln, he's interred somewhere in Illinois, so he's not going to show up at Old Navy. That's what makes that funny. But the, the, the thing that I want to get across to all of us today is it isn't, it isn't humorous with Jesus because Jesus is not locked in time. He transcends time. Do you know Jesus? I ask that question today because Jesus is the ultimate victim of identity theft. Most people, when they think about Jesus, and forgive me for breaking a sentence, but Jesus is a very controversial figure. Did you know that? An extraordinarily controversial figure. Hasn't been too long ago since I was asked to give the invocation at a big civic event. And I was instructed before I came, they had asked me to pray, and they said, we would like for you to pray a non-sectarian prayer. Now, I know what that means. I was born at night, but not last night. A non-sectarian prayer means do not use Jesus' name. And I very graciously explained that I didn't know any other way to pray that I would have to use his name. And in the very moment that, that someone mentions Jesus or his claims, in our politically correct world of 2010, there is the idea, well, I don't know about Jesus because I'm not sure his message is inclusive. But there's a fundamentally wrong, flawed concept underneath that whole thing. And that concept is this, that Jesus is the leader of a religion. And as such, his religion can be put on the shelf with all the other religions of the world and looked at in a pretty much even-handed way. Because there's Confucius who heads up those who are in Confucianism. There, you know, there's Buddha who leads up the Buddhists. And there's you know, Muhammad who leads... His religion, and there's Jesus who leads his religion, and there's, you know, Abraham, and there's Judaism, 
and Jesus is right up there on the shelf with everybody else. And we all know what it's like to live in our culture where people argue and scrap and, and fight over religion. And, and so when Jesus is controversial, perhaps it's because people consider him as a leader of religions. And in, for those of us who have taken a, a, a study in a course of you know, comparative religion, we can say, okay, he is the head of the Christian religion. What's so wrong about that is Jesus is anti-religion. I always tell you guys, and maybe I say it too many times, I say I hate religion. But when I say Jesus is anti-religion, I don't mean that he's against the people who are in other religions. He's just against the systems of religion. So against that, that when he was on the earth... He even talked about people that would misuse his teachings and turn it into a religion. And here's what he said. He, he was talking about the day when he would be judging the world, and he said, there will be many who will stand before me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not preach in your name, and did we not do many wonderful works in your name? And Jesus will say, this is his words. He said, I'll say, I don't know who you are. I don't know you. Because they turned Jesus into a religious system. The problem with religion is that it will either make you an arrogant jerk or it will make you a depressed loser. Is there anybody here, and please don't raise your hand, but is there anyone here who's had a bad experience with religion? Maybe you had a bad experience with a Christian religion. There was a church that had a cross outside and, and had Jesus' name, but the people that you met there were mean and judgmental and angry and hypocritical. Or maybe you've had a ex bad experience with another religion. And maybe you tried to keep all of its rules. Well, the problem with religion is this. It has the idea that if you do enough good stuff, you can somehow get God to like you. Well, if you think you're doing enough good stuff, that turns us into arrogant people. I've got it going on. What's wrong with you? Or those of us, I'm probably more in the second category with religion. I've tried to keep the rules, but I can't, I can't be perfect for 30 minutes. And I just want to put my head in my lap and say, okay, I guess I'm never going to get it. When I say that Jesus is anti-religion, that's what I'm talking about. He is against those kinds of systems that human beings create to say, if you jump through enough hoops and if you keep enough rules, somehow you can placate God. For the next three weeks, I want to introduce Jesus to you, and I know that the moment I say that, it's almost a laughable statement because I can't begin to tell you everything that you can know about Jesus in three weeks. But what I want to do, what I want to do is I want to rattle us a little bit. I want to take us out of our comfort zone, and I want us to see the Jesus that the Bible presents. I want, us, I want you to see Jesus as he really is, not with his identity stolen by people who don't have any idea what he's about. I want you to see what he's like from the Bible. Today, I want to give you the four most important words you need to know about Jesus. This is, this is the key. You need to know this more than you need to know anything else. And it's from John's Gospel, chapter 1, in the fourth verse. The Bible simply gives us these four words about Jesus. In him was life. In him was life. In fact, I just cherry-picked from John chapter 1, but if you looked at verses 3 through 5, what the Bible says is that when, he, when, cre when creation happened, he was involved in every aspect of creation. John writes, there was nothing made that Jesus did not make. Wow. Many of us have the idea that Jesus showed up in Bethlehem for the first time, that he was born to Mary, 
and he was born in a stable. No doubt there were colored lights outside. And the angel saying, and wise men came from the east, and that's where Jesus got started. Oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. In him is life. He is the originator of life. He is the source of life. When creation happened, that was his responsibility. Now, I'm going to go into an, a, I'm going to go into an area of study that I don't understand. But it's one of those points that God makes. And I think one of the challenges that we have understanding God is we're looking through the other end of the funnel. We are made in God's image, not God made in our image. And oftentimes when the Bible makes a claim about God, we try to interpret that claim through the prism of our own experience. But the Bible says this about God, that God is Trinity. That basically what that means, he's one God but three persons. He is Father, he is Son, he is Spirit. Please don't come after Come up to me after service and tell me that you figured it out because I'll tell you right now, you haven't figured, out, figured it out. It is a mystery. It is beyond me. But it, that's what the Bible says about God. Now, in creation, all three members of the Godhead are at work creating. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the Bible says the Spirit of God was just sort of pervasive over all creation. But we do know what the person we know of as Jesus was doing. In him was life. He gives life. I'm not trying to be sacrilegious. He's the life guy. The Bible simply says that God sculpted Adam out of the dust of the ground. And I will tell you that the member of the Godhead who leaned over Adam and blew the breath of life into Adam's nostrils and made him a living person is the same person we know of as Jesus, the Son of God. See, he didn't first show up in Bethlehem. A lot of religions tell the story of a man or a woman who was, was so elevated that eventually they became God. Jesus is not a man who became God. He is God who became human. He came into our world on a rescue mission. In him was life. That life that you have in you right now, and by the way, all of us have it. You know, we, we think, well, wait a minute. I, I can't see God. Is he really real? That's because God is spirit. The Bible tells us in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the things that we can see are all temporary. It's what we can't see that's eternal. You and I are living spirits in a body, and I promise you, no matter how beautiful or handsome you think you are, if life leaves your body, nobody's going to want to be around us in about 10 days. See, Jesus is the one who gave life. And not only that, but he kept showing up in the Old Testament. Here's a word I bet you haven't used 12 times in the last week. The word is Christophany. And what Christophany means, it's a visual manifestation of pre-incarnate Christ. Basically speaking, it means Jesus showed up before he was born in Bethlehem. And he did. If you read the Bible, it's really cool. He showed up at various places to help God's people who were in need. He showed up and helped Abraham. He showed up and helped Moses. He helped the Israelites go through the wilderness. He showed up at various times. One of my favorite times when Jesus showed up in the Old Testament was when there were three guys, their names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were young Jewish guys who were carried away into captivity right at a, a point of political correctness. The ruler had decided that everybody should bow down to him. He erected a statue of himself. I think it was like 90 feet tall. And he demanded that everybody in the country, especially the leaders, all bow down and give worship to this image. And these three Jewish boys who had been carried away into captivity, they had been taught, you don't worship anybody but God. And when the king said, listen, here's the deal. You either bow down or you're going to be roasted. And I don't mean taken to a banquet and people saying bad things about you. He meant roasted literally. They had a furnace of fire there. And they, they said, anybody who didn't bow is going to burn. And these three guys didn't. I mean, everybody else bowed, but these guys stood up. 
And the king went to him and said, you guys are a little slow. Maybe y'all are from the Midwest or something. You know how people treat us, you know. Maybe you guys are a little slow. I don't know if you got this the first time or not, but this whole thing is about bowing down. Everybody's got to bow down. This is where everybody's got to do the same thing here. This is, you know, this is all about conformity here. And they said, sir, we're not careful to answer you. We have a God, and we can't bow down. And, and he got so angry that they heated the furnace so hot that the king's attendants who threw them into the furnace were killed themselves. And one of the coolest places in the Bible, you know, the king and his men, they were up in an amphitheater watching this furnace. They were going to watch these three guys, you know, burn to death because they were politically incorrect. And after a while, the king said, this is a mathematical problem here. Didn't we throw three guys in the furnace? And his guys said, yeah. He said, I see four. And that fourth one is different from the other three. And these are the words of that king. The fourth one is like the Son of God. You know why? Jesus showed up. In him is life. And his people needed help. So you could say in him was life, and you could look to the past and say definitely Jesus gave life, and he showed up to help God's people who needed help. And then, of course, there were those 33 years when he was on the earth. Well, let's take this in a different direction. You know, in him was life. He, he was somebody who enjoyed life. I, I, I've met people who've had a, a background with religion, and it's like anything fun has got to be sin. You ever meet anybody like that? If it's fun, it's got to be wrong. And if it has to do with God, it's got to be painful. You know? I, and every once in a while, someone will come to New Spring and think, wow, that music, is, is that okay to do that in church? And a Starbucks on stage? And, and Kids World? You see how much fun those kids are having? Guys, could I just tell you something? Jesus was full of life when he was on the earth. In him was life. He was a guy who liked to have a good time. He liked to hang with his friends. He went to parties. He went to weddings. Many of us think we have a picture of Jesus. And, and if, you, if you think, Mark, I really think I have a picture of Jesus in my house, uh, you need to just put your fingers in your ears for about the next two or three minutes, okay? Because what I want to tell all of us is, is there are no pictures of Jesus. In the second and third century, which would have been more contemporaneous with Jesus, there were no pictures at all because the church leaders kind of were freaked about the second commandment that you're not to have a graven image. And so they decided not to have pictures of Jesus. But what pictures of Jesus did exist, they just represent him as an ordinary looking Jewish guy. Short, dark hair, dark eyebrows, just an ordinary looking guy. Nothing spectacular. And what they drew from, from was Isaiah the prophet had prophesied about Jesus coming. And he said, Isaiah said, when Jesus comes, there's nothing about his appearance that's going to stand out. He's going to look very ordinary. And so that, the few pictures they had, they presented Jesus that way. But you know how that Christians can get insecure when somebody on the outside begins to rip Christians and make fun of them. And about the third century, there was this, this pagan celebrity that started ripping Christians by saying that they didn't have a very good-looking God. And so some of the Christian leaders suddenly decided that Jesus must have looked perfect. And so that's when all the delicate features, and by the 6th century, the long hair, and that expression of Jesus where he's doing like this came about. That's all junk. Jesus is a real guy. He loved life. You know, he, he loved having a good time. He was talking, you know, in the Gospel of Luke, you know, the, the religious crowd were always out to rip Jesus because he, he didn't fit into their mold. 
And John the Baptist, who had come before Jesus to announce his coming, had, had lived a very different lifestyle. He'd lived the life of an ascetic. And he, had, you know, he didn't go to parties, and he didn't drink uh, anything. And so Jesus was saying, you guys said John had a demon, but he, he said in Luke chapter 7, the Son of Man comes, eats, feasts, and drinks, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard. Now, he wasn't a glutton, and he wasn't a drunkard. But Jesus had a good time. You got to remember, he was God and human at the same time. And that came up with some interesting situations. He could drink water and he could walk on it. He could swim in it. He could turn it into wine. Because he, he, that's, but he, 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 he loved people. He loved having a good time. From what I can read in the Gospels, he loved boating. He was always wanting to go out in the water. He didn't own a boat, but he had friends who owned a boat, and that's even better. So I just want to, I want to mess with you a little bit. Those of us who've got this idea of Jesus that religion has spawned, that he was this delicate, you know, hyper-spiritual person who really never understood life, so wrong. In him was life, real life. I say that because so many of us have been taught by religion that if we're going to have a relationship with God, we have to leave behind everything that's fun. Could not be further from the truth. It was God who created pleasure. Now, I'll be the first to admit that sometimes people take things that God made for pleasure and they take them too far, take them in the wrong place, and it does turn into sin. But for those of us who have tried those things, the pleasure stops after a while too. The things that really matter, the things that are really fun in life, God has given those, the Bible says, richly for us to enjoy. And Jesus loved life. In him was life. Not only creation life, not only life at its fullest, but finally this today. When Jesus gave his life statement in John chapter 10, I'm going to read this out of the Amplified Version. He first talks about Satan. He said, the thief comes only in order to steal and kill and destroy. Listen to what Jesus said. I am come that they might have and enjoy life and have it in abundance to the full until it overflows. When Jesus came into our world, he didn't come into the world to start a religion. He came into our world to give us life. Not just life in this life, because I don't know how long we're going to live. Some of us will live 30 years, some of us will live 50 years, few of us might even live to be 100. But that's not the life that really matters. The life that we've been designed to live is the life that takes place after this life. So Jesus wants you to enjoy life to the max here and have a great life and a meaningful life. But then after this life is over, he wants to show you what life is really like. Like I said, Jesus' primary issue was with religion. And while he was on the earth, there was a very religious man who wanted to talk to Jesus. He had tried religion, and it had left him empty. And not only empty as, say, someone who went to church, he was a spiritual leader, probably the leading what we would call seminarian of his day. Seminary is a school where they train ministers. This guy, Nicodemus, would have been the leading seminarian there. Arguably, he could have been the most religious man in Jerusalem the most respected Jewish man. So he sneaked out to hear Jesus at night because he didn't want to lose his reputation. And he went over to Jesus' house where Jesus was staying, and he said, Sir, I know that you've got to be a teacher from God because these these miracles, these things you do are 
They're not normal. I think what Nicodemus was trying to do was to put his stamp of approval on Jesus. I think he was trying to say, I know there are a lot of religious guys who rip you all the time, but I, I really do think you're good. I really do think you came from God. I came to give you the good housekeeping seal of approval. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, you're going to have to be born all over again. Uh, Jesus is into life. In him is life. That's what he's concerned about. He's not concerned about religion. He's concerned about life. And he was saying, Nicodemus, you were born the first time. You've got physical life, but that's not good enough. If you want to go to heaven, you've got to be born again. You've got to have spiritual life. And Nicodemus doesn't get it at all because religion never gets that. And Nicodemus is saying, excuse me, you're saying I have to go back into my mother's body and be born all over again? I'm an old man. Jesus said, no, you don't get it. But Jesus knows he will get one thing. Nicodemus is a scholar. He knows the Old Testament. He knows what the first half of our Bible is. So Jesus started telling him a story that Nicodemus knows very well. It all went back to when Moses was leading the Israelites through the wilderness. And I don't remember exactly what it was, but the people got God really upset. I think they'd been whining and complaining after God had been very good to them. So God got angry and he sent poisonous snakes into the camp. Now, I hate snakes. That would get my attention. I don't know what they were whining about, but I'd have stopped right there. But they were stubborn. I guess they just kept on. And snakes just started biting people, and people were keeling over and dying. And after a while, the people got a clue and went to Moses and said, we need to do something about these snakes. And Moses prayed and asked God for an answer, and God gave Moses the most interesting thing. God said to Moses, get a craftsman or craftswoman and, and get a, a bronze pole and have that craftsperson construct a brass snake and put it on the pole and walk through the camp. Hold the pole up with the snake displayed. Walk through the camp, and anyone who looks upon the snake and believes will be healed. so interesting. They weren't to believe that the snake would heal them. That would have been idolatry. But here's what, what, what the point was. They were to look upon that snake as a representative of their sin and believe that God could heal them from what their sin had caused them to experience. Got that? Now, listen to how Jesus answers Nicodemus. In John 3, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, just so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross, what was he carrying? He was carrying your sin and my sin. Everything that we've ever done. Remember, sin brings death, the Bible says. And not just death in this life, but death eternally. The word death in the Bible is the Greek word thanatos. It just means separation. The first death that we experience is when our body is separated from the soul and spirit. The second death the Bible talks about is when people are separated forever from God. And it's our sin that leads us into that judgment. But when Jesus was on the cross, the one who is the giver of life took our death on him. He, he took our sin upon him so that God punished him as though he had committed all the sins that you and I have committed. And that's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, if you want to know how to be born again, you've got to know the Son of Man has got to be lifted up so that everyone who believes on him will have eternal life. Verse 16 is the most famous verse in the Bible. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus said God sent his Son, he's speaking of himself, Jesus, God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world but save the world through him. 
I'm a follower of Jesus not because he's convinced me that he's the right leader of the right religion. I believe in Jesus because he's life. He's the giver of life. I could be talking to somebody here today and you say, okay, Mark, I get it. I still think deep down inside, Mark, even though you're not saying it, you're trying to dance around it. I honestly think, Mark, you still are a follower of a religion called Christianity that's got a leader named Jesus. And I don't care what you say about this in him was life business. I still think you're the follower of a religion. All right? Fair enough. Let me show you a scenario. Not so long ago, I was up at the hospital here. A guy about my age, very ill with cancer. He's a new springer, a great guy, and a close personal friend. And the doctors had tried all kinds of treatments, but he was getting worse and worse. And finally, they said, our last hope is an experimental treatment, and we'll try it. And he was hopeful. I happened to be at the hospital. I just happened to be there. The day the doctor walked in and said, I'm sorry it didn't work. And the tumors are much larger. There's nothing that we can do. And my friend, who was very weak at this point, asked the question straight up. Well, then how much time do I have left? I was expecting the doctor to say months, maybe. But I was amazed that he said, to be honest, I think about 72 hours. With that, the doctor walked out of the room and just left my friend and me. And he reached out and he took my hand in his and he looked at me and I can remember the quizzical look upon his eyes as he said, now what? All right. Just which religion do you suggest I refer him to? I held his hand in mine and I said, well, we're going to ask for a miracle. But if it doesn't happen, here's what's going to happen. The person that you really are is going to leave the body that has cancer. Because your body has cancer, you don't have cancer. You just live in a body that's got cancer. And what's going to happen in several hours is that you're going to leave behind this body and the very first hand you're going to fill in yours is going to be Jesus' hand. Because the Bible says to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord and it's very consistent because in him is life. Eternal life. I reminded him of when Stephen was being stoned for preaching the gospel as he was dying, he looked up and said, I see heaven open and I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And I said, that's what's going to happen. And sure enough, in a few hours it happened, I believe, just like that. Let, let me throw another one at you. When I graduated from college in 1978, I went to Houston to serve a church. It was not, <laughs> the church was in an inner city. Rough, rough, rough part of town. And in those days, Houston was called the murder capital of the world. And we lived up to our name. I remember one night, 12 people were murdered just in one night in Houston. Not connected situations. Scary place. 
And I used to just love to go out on the streets and just walk up and down the streets and talk to people and knock on doors and, and just touch people. And the people there in the church, I guess they knew the area much better than I did. I've always been fearless or maybe just stupid. I don't know. But I, I love to talk to people. And they used to plead with me, Mark, please don't go by yourself at night. And sure enough, I'd hear the pop, pop, pop of gunfire. But I never was afraid. I was afraid of dogs because everybody had a mean dog. They, I, were, I was afraid of those. I promise you, I could keep you here until tomorrow telling you the coolest stories of what God did in people's lives as I walked the streets of Northeast Houston. I remember one night, I knocked on a particular door, and a 20-year-old boy walked out. Long, matted hair, pasty white face, needle marks in his arms. And I introduced myself and told him where I was from, and, and I just engaged him in conversation for a while. And I said, you know, what I really came to talk to you about is, is your relationship with God. And as I said, what's important to me is that you have such a relationship with God that you know that no matter what happens to you, that when this life is over, that you're going to heaven. And not in a belligerent or arrogant kind of way, but just, in, just as if he were reporting the facts of a story. He said to me, I can't go to heaven. I'm going to hell. And I said, well, why do you say that? He said, because I killed a man right where you're standing. I said, well, I'll move. <laughs> he said, no, I, it, was, it was part of a drug deal that went bad. And he said it was self-defense, but he said, when you kill somebody over drugs, he said, I was selling there's no way God can forgive me. All right. If this is comparative religion, shoot straight with me. Which religion you suggest I offer him? You know any religions that can undo a murder? You know any religions that can undo the damage of a drug dealer who sold drugs to kids? See, I didn't tell him about a religion. I told him about a person. I told him about a person who had life to give. And I still remember after all these years, how he put his hand in mine and on the steps of his house, this young drug dealer who had killed a man in cold blood on his porch gave his heart and life to Jesus Christ. I watched him the next Sunday as he walked in the church where I pastored a few weeks later, so many have done it. Watermark here, he went public with his faith. See, I don't give a rip about religion. I think it's all a waste of time. I follow Jesus because in him is life. Life in this world. And life forever to come. Do you know him? Do you really know him? Do you know how much he loves you? Do you know the gift he has for you? Do you know the life he has for you? Let's pray. I could be talking to somebody here today and you're saying, Mark, I really get it. I really get it. It's not about religion. It's not about rules. It's not about joining a church. It isn't about giving money. It's about me knowing a person. And I believe 
what the Bible says, that Jesus is the giver of life, and I am ready now to receive the gift. But how do I get that gift? Well, how do you, how do you get any gift? You just reach out and take it. In the Bible, people who wanted everlasting life, they wanted a relationship with God, they just asked Jesus for it. Remember the thief on the cross? He just said, Lord, remember me when you come. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. If you've never invited Jesus to become your Lord and Savior and to bring you eternal life, I want to give you a chance to do it right now. I'm going to pray a prayer. These aren't magic words, but these are heartfelt words that call out to Jesus. And if you're ready to have him in your life, to be forgiven of every sin you ever have or ever will committed, if you're ready to get God's gift of life that goes on past this life, this is the time. I'm going to pray the prayer slowly so that you can sort of savor the words as we go through it. What matters is what you feel, not what you say. You ready? Here we go. Dear Jesus, I agree that I'm a sinner. I can't undo my sin. And I can't save myself. Thank you for dying for me and paying the price for my sins. Please forgive me and make me God's child. Thank you for saving me. I'm looking forward to living with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.